Hey folks, thanks for downloading the podcast. Just wanted to give you a bit of forewarning. Audio quality on my end for this particular podcast is not as good as I would usually expect it, but unfortunately there was an error that we did not notice until we got into post-production and it wasn't possible to fully re-record. Thanks and appreciate you listening. That's the nice thing about the Blitz show is at least you, if you don't have a rooting interest in one particular team and need to watch that game specifically, this is your opportunity to really enjoy that compact four hours of football and, uh, you know, get the most out of it. Um, I know I was in your seat a couple years ago when we did it and I just loved going through those boxes. Um, at the beginning of the show, when I was doing that, I had someone in the background listening to me do it. And this person was just like, what are you doing? That is amazing. Just, you can just go through all of those boxes. Like, yeah, this is what today is. This is what that first round day is like. A lot of fun. It is. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. A lot of, uh, a lot of activity, a lot of bouncing around between games and didn't get a ton of like crazy great finishes on Saturday, but you know, that's sports. You never know. Sometimes, sometimes you get RPI union and Cortica happening at the same time. And sometimes you get, you know, a lot of uh, multiple score games. You never know. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football with the largest bracket in college football. We welcome you to podcast number 295, season 15, episode 18, the podcast for November 22nd of 2021. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Sports.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write AroundTheNation.com, and Pat, we're one round in, and I, you and I are both hosting games next week, so it feels pretty good. AroundTheNation.com. I have to go now back behind the scenes and <laughs> register that domain name so that uh, we don't get it sniped away from us, right? I really wish I had the domain D3.com because so many people refer to us as D3.com, and like that—that's uh, you know, I appreciate that we have shorthand that makes sense for us, but uh, I don't—we don't have that domain and can't redirect it. No, we need we, we need more Patreon sponsorship to get that domain. Make life a- easier for everybody. That's got to be a pretty expensive domain. It's just two letters or two characters. That's got to be crazy. I can't imagine. We are coming off of a first round of playoffs, which was a fairly typical first round of playoffs. Typical in that if you looked at our top 25 poll and you took our top 25 poll and you made your picks based off of our top 25 poll, you did pretty well. If you looked at the regional rankings or you just didn't bother to compare teams head to head and just took regional rankings in region one versus regional rankings in region two and didn't bother to compare teams against each other you may not have done so well uh there's a couple of uh, those unexpected home teams that we talked about in last week's podcast they both lost of course there was a game that didn't take place there was no contest um that news will probably have rolled off our front page by the time this podcast drops um, and of course there were 15 games that were played and not a whole lot of them that were crazy close, but there were some good finishes. And these are the things that uh, we are definitely here to talk about this week. That's right. And I think when you look at the regional rankings and our top 25 poll, they're kind of different exercises, right? There's a certain specific set of criteria that the regional rankings are guided by. Uh, our top 25 poll can lean a little bit more into subjectivity and eye test and, 
you know, historical record. And you're going to get, you know, the people that voted on our top 25 can have seen and watched Wisconsin lacrosse and Albion play this season and know probably how that game is going to go. And the rankings bore that out. Lacrosse ranked, I think, 11 or 12 in the final top 25 of Division3Football.com. And that's not, a, that's not our website either. Um, not that domain either. Oh, crap. <laughs> Albion unranked in that game, you know, ended up as our pollsters would have thought it, it, it did, even if it didn't match what was in the regional rankings. Yeah, that domain is for sale, and I'm being given a phone number with which to purchase it, so I'm not sure that we're going to go down that rabbit hole either. Listen, what the committee is supposed to do, what they've done in the past, confirm this with other past committee members, is you're supposed to take Wisconsin lacrosse, and you're supposed to take Albion, and not just say, well, Albion is two in the four, and lacrosse is four in the six. Uh, those are off the top of my head, but I think that's correct. And say, well, therefore, Albion must be the higher seat. No, you were supposed to take them and compare them head to head. And by the way, there was a common opponent that was fairly telling there as well. Um, that, that, I mean, easy pickings for those of us who are supposed to pick quote unquote upsets, right? I mean, did we sweep? No, we had five out of our six picks uh, lacrosse over Albion. We did have, we did have one, one straight pick for Albion, a little flyer on, on an upset there, but yeah, lacrosse. We're, and we're going to get to lacrosse. We've got uh, Matt Janice in the tight five as well to talk about their win at Albion. And we've expanded the tight five to tight six because, hey, it's not 500 miles anymore. It's 600 miles. So why don't we just have six minutes of tight five? Why don't we just throw it all out? We're going to throw it all out. I didn't think I was this fired up. But then we started talking about the home field thing. It just, this stuff really annoys me. And I was, like I said, I was uh, talking with another uh, former member of the committee who was very happy that we called the committee out on their region five shenanigans. Let's say that. I know we're revisiting a podcast that like thousands and thousands of people downloaded and listened to last week. Very happy to see those numbers, by the way. Um, and it just, it, it seems, yep, it still seems shenanigany to me. A little a little sus, I believe is the word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, this is a podcast where we are going to hand out game balls. We will give you our stats of the week. Greg will give you several things that are not his stat. I believe I saw that somewhere. We'll talk about each of the, uh, we'll talk about each of the first round games in at least a little bit of detail. We'll get you some audio from the players and the coaches who participated in those games. Um, Greg mentioned Matt Janice is the uh, head coach of UW lacrosse. He's a guest on our type five plus. And then we'll get a look at, of course, those second round games coming up. The ones which are gonna be taking place while you are most likely still having that uh, turkey hangover. And so, you know, feel free to enjoy those with your leftover turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes. And oh my God, I'm hungry. Greg, we would be remiss if we went any further in this podcast without thanking our subscribers on Patreon. These are the people who have signed up to pledge anywhere from three to, yes, at some points, even $50 a month to help support production of this podcast and production of the D3Sports.com websites in general. Absolutely. And like we've, we've said it all season long, we couldn't get through the canceled season in 2020 and into this 2021 season and now into the playoffs without the support of those without the support of those uh, Patreon subscribers. They've helped support D3Football.com. They also help D3Hoops.com. Basketball season in full swing. It's happening. All of your favorite preseason tournaments going on right now. A lot of good stuff out there. A lot of crazy 
top 25 matchups, interregional stuff. It's all very good. You can follow Dave McHugh, Gordon Mann, Ryan Scott, doing all of the good work over at d3hoops.com. Yeah, I'm doing very little of the good work at d3hoops.com this time of the year. Those guys are doing a great job keeping it all running. If you're someone who wants to help support the operation of the website, but maybe not make an ongoing contribution on a regular basis, go to d3sports.com slash help and you can get a form to make a one-time donation. That is also super helpful. Patreon.com slash D3Sports. Tight Five here with Matt Janis, head coach of UW Lacrosse Football. His team victorious on the road at Albion on Saturday, headed now to face North Central in the second round. Coach, I don't know if you guys felt like you needed to, uh, like you deserved to be set on the road or deserved to be, uh, you know, playing at home. So how did you uh, play that with your team? Yeah, you know, obviously uh, we, we definitely want to play in front of our home crowd and at our home stadium, but, uh, you know, so we talked about that a little bit, put a little bit of a chip on the shoulder, I guess you would say. Um, but, you know what, uh, kind of the cool part about what we've done this year is this, this was our, I think, our fifth overnight trip. Uh, so our guys, you know, are pretty pretty routine in, in what we do and in how they do that. You know, we started the season going out to – to Madison, South Dakota, and then we had we we we've done the Michigan, the Wisconsin to Michigan trip when we played Grand Valley. So we're it's actually kind of well versed in how we stop and where we're going. So uh, you know our guys been pretty good with adjusting uh, on the road. Well, how long is that bus trip? I don't even you know it was you you lose the hours so you get all screwed up because we're on Central Time, they're on Eastern Time, so we got all screwed up. I, I don't know six seven hours something like that, but we kind of broke it up. We stopped at uh, one of those oasises in uh, Illinois, so they got to kind of get out and get some food and all that stuff, kind of break it up a little bit. But it wasn't too bad. We we got in about uh, we got back at midnight last night, so it's it's not too bad. And and here we go back to work today. I know you've got game a game coming up, and you just played a game, but I want to ask. Compare Whitewater, or maybe if you've already seen some North Central film, to Grand Valley. What's the what's the comparison like? Hmm, that's a good one. I mean, we 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 played that Grand Valley game, uh, so we could get uh to, to get the best possible look we can, and, and obviously to prepare us for uh you know for that Whitewater game and, and for for our conference, um, and then to prepare us now for for what we're gonna see in, in the number one team in the country in terms of of size and and talent and, and speed and. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I think we had some some players that that stepped up and and shined in that game, despite it being a loss. Um, and, and, you know, so I think that the talent we're going to see, I don't know if it's, you know, it's going to be comparable uh, with, with some of these top teams in the country that we're playing. I mean, we played the, the number three team in the country. And now we're going to play the number one team in the country and, and the talent's going to be comparable to, to what we saw. Okay, so you guys sat out uh, Jacob Parks, quarterback, in that regular season finale against Eau Claire. Looked like he was pretty good yesterday against Albion. How's he doing? Yeah, he's doing good. Uh, you know, he had a, a, a he got hit in, a, in our Whitewater game, and he took like kind of a, a, a strained neck ligament. And I'm not very great with the neck and the back and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I just we just kind of erred on the side of caution. Our training staff, yeah, our training staff did a great job of of getting him ready. Uh, we we probably needed probably one more day to get him cleared for the Eau Claire game. If we maybe played that on Sunday, he would have been good, but we, we aired on the side of caution. And, and so he, he was back at practice Monday and, and obviously had a fantastic game coming back. And it looked like he didn't skip a beat. I mean, he throws for five touchdowns, uh, you know, just brings that, that confidence and that poise that, that he has in the pocket. I know we we're having this conversation on uh, Sunday morning, uh, about 24 hours before our podcast drops. How much film have you guys already looked at for North Central and that sort of thing coming into this? 
we're trying to get a little bit on the bus, uh, you know, but uh, you know how the Wi-Fi goes on a, on a charter bus sometimes, a little spotty. Um, so right now, I mean, we're still trying to correct everything that 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 we did from from yesterday. And, you know, I'm still going over special teams, our offensive defense side of the ball. Uh, you know, they still got to take care and, and fix the mistakes that, that, that we made yesterday before we can even move on to North Central. So probably about, uh, you know, 11 a.m., we'll really start diving into to their film and, and start getting our game plan together. And a much shorter trip coming up this week, obviously. Yeah, not not too bad. You know, four hours that'll that'll feel feel it'll go by like that. All right, so tell us a little bit more about the uh, the other guys on the team. Obviously, we know about Samunchak, we know about Stutzman. Tell us a little bit more about some of the other guys who are playing key roles for you guys this year. Yeah, you know, I, I think you know it starts uh, you know on our offense with our offensive line. I think our offensive line. This is a group that that all started uh, in 2019, and and most of them were young. They were sophomores uh, from Cole Greco, Mike Bertoya, Alex Bongers. Uh, ben Hildebrand, um, Connor Berry, you know, these are all guys that started a, as sophomores and it was just, they had a rough year in 2019. They were sophomores. There was a lot of growing pains that they went through. Um, and then our offensive line coach, coach McGlenn's just done an awesome job uh, throughout the COVID, you know, the COVID year that we had off and then just getting that group ready to grow. And you can just see the, the improvements that they've made. You know, we had some big expectations as we got into the season uh, with what we expected from that group. And, and they've just they've just come on and just had a great year um, for us. And it's just kind of cool to see the growth of a position throughout a two or two or three three year time period. So really excited with, with what we're doing up there. And, and then obviously that enables for, you know, Joey Stutzman. I think that's our first thousand yard rusher here at UW Lacrosse since 2003, I believe, uh, if I'm correct in that. Uh, so so you can just see kind of the improvements that, that we've made in our run game. And that's helped and opened up our, our passing game to be able to get the ball to Simicek and, and Cam Sorensen and some of our other receivers. And then last question for you, what's it like now being the head coach after having been, you know, an assistant coach uh, and also just leading this program to the playoffs for the first time since 06? What's it like? I mean, it's obviously a change. It's making the change from, from being a play caller to, uh, you know, even yet, even yesterday at the game, I had to catch myself on the headsets. I was our defense coordinator, Coach White. I was trying to get me. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to shut up. You do your job. I'm going to stay out of this. But it's been kind of a, the transition there. But, uh, you know, I got great people around me. I got a great staff, uh, you know, guys that have been a part of it, this university, some of our guys on staff for, for 26 plus years. Um, and then, you know, I, I have two great coordinators that, uh, you know, I just like I said, I hired great hired great people and and let them do their thing. And and then we got great players here. We got great players that just bought into to everything that we've been doing. If nothing else, right, getting sent on the road like that is a good bonding experience for the student athletes. Not that they hadn't already made a bus trip to Michigan, uh, but also an opportunity for a coach to play the respect card in a way that is legitimate, not like, you know, some fake bulletin board material or even semi legitimate bulletin board material. This is literally the committee did not respect the resume of lacrosse enough to give them a home game. And I would totally use that as a motivational factor if I was the coach. Absolutely. And, you know, paid off. They were lacrosse looked great on Saturday and they advanced. They're going to play the defending champion, North central Cardinals. And interestingly, you know, North central, we they've been great all, all season. They have been every bit the defending champion. And most of the teams that North central will see throughout this tournament are going to see, it's it's they haven't played a team like this season right wisconsin lacrosse has they they've played wisconsin whitewater they're in that they're in that zone and uh, matt janice said in the in the tight six there they used that game against grand valley to really get exposed to the types of size and speed and skill that they're going to have to play and beat to win a national championship and win the wiac so 
you know, that that is one of the better looking round two matchups uh, next weekend. We'll talk about all eight of them coming up in a little bit. But now, game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to go to central quarterback Blaine Hawkins. Hawkins threw for seven touchdowns against Bethel, or to put it in perspective, two more than Aaron Severson and Chris Backus combined through four in two St. John's wins against Bethel this season. I think I saw more different looks from Hawkins in one two-minute highlight reel from Saturday's game than I saw the entire time I was in Iowa a couple of weeks ago. That was a good first big test for the central offense against a defense that is a little bit more of playoff quality. And now we'll see how Hawkins, the Rhinos on the offensive line, and the rest of the Dutch offense does against Wheaton, which is probably the best front seven in Division Three. Hawkins also now has 172 touchdowns responsible for. If you don't know what that means, that is touchdown passes plus touchdown runs. That surpassed the previous record of 168, which was set by no less than Mount Union's Kevin Burke. That's pretty heady company and a heck of a guy to knock out of the record book. And that, in a 61-35 to 35 win, gets Blaine Hawkins my game ball. Well-deserved. My game ball is going to go to Mary Harden Baylor's Swiss Army Knife, Jefferson Fritz. Fritz had his typical solid performance at safety for the crew with six tackles, a pass breakup, and a couple of those signature big Jefferson Fritz hits. But Fritz is getting my game ball this week for his role on special teams. In a defensive slugfest dictated by field position, Fritz dropped four of his five punts inside the 20, including two fourth-quarter punts inside the 10. Fritz kept Trinity pinned back deep in their own end of the field for most of this game, and for that, he gets my game ball. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that Mary Harden-Baylor game as we start in the upper left-hand bracket. That's the St. John's bracket, uh, but, uh, you know, Mary Harden-Baylor with the win against Trinity 13-3, to a game I think it's not unreasonable to have suspected that that game would be in doubt late in the contest. I just did not expect it to be, for a very long time, a 6-3 game. And I guess the uh, bullpens were doing their job. They were. This is probably probably the game of the round, I think. And as is often the case, uh, UMHB gets a second or third round quality opponent in the first round. And this game had December quality defense on both sides. Trinity scored first with a short field goal in the first quarter. Then the Crusader defense dominated the rest of the game. Trinity never got within reasonable scoring range again, and their final four possessions ended on their own 8, 33, 9, and 17-yard lines. Trinity's defense was nearly a match for UMHB, but with the field tilted against them so heavily for all of the fourth quarter, UMHB was finally able to find the end zone with just two minutes left to play and, and put that game out of reach. Fredberg was asked about this in the post-game news conference because they – took a score off the board in order to go for it on fourth and one. Let's talk first about the decision to take the points off the board. And go yeah, good Lord, who's, who is dumb enough to do that? You know that <laughs> well, you we, I've always been point. taught don't ever take no. points off the board. And, and, and how many y'all have punted when you had it at the plus 30 in the first half, kind of played conservative, and then and then did what? I mean, you made the decision kind of quickly, it seemed like. What well, I, I did because I really felt like that, that, number one, I was talking about going for a field goal because it would have it still given them an opportunity to score a touchdown. So I was thinking that I really would like to have gone for it, too. But the odds of us making it at that point was not, was not good. So when it gave us the opportunity on fourth and one, 
I just felt like that if we could get a touchdown, that, that would end the ball game. One of the reasons the game is that close that late, Greg, is because Mary Hart Bears really struggled with the kicking game this season. Anthony Avila has been, in the past, very reliable, struggled a little bit in the spring, and has, you know, missed some key kicks here in the uh, in the fall season as well. You know, I don't know. I, I, I would rather make all my yeah, field goals yeah. to attempts, but so when the, both of them miss, I just I'm yeah. still in the in the lurch on who's going to be the guy that we go to. And you know, I think Randy Smith, our coach, does an incredible job of working with those guys. Uh, but you know, when when they miss one, it just affects their confidence so much that you have to go back and forth. Yeah. We were watching that in pregame. Uh, wind obviously played a big factor. Uh, the guys having to adjust depending on what hash they were on. How much did it affect it during the decision in the game? Well, because, because I asked Randy, okay, who's who's the best from this hash? And that's what he, he felt like that uh, um, what Cunningham was. So, you know, it goes by hash now instead of just distance. But, <laughs> so it's just the working with kickers and pole vaulters, it's always the same. Obviously, Greg, we have had, you know, even teams at the Division Three level send out different kickers to kick, to make long field goal attempts. I think of Max Rottenecker for Ithaca five or seven years ago, the kid they called Das Boot. Never mind the bad German. But uh, point being, this is not that situation. It's something completely different now. No, Coach Fred is talking about left hash kickers and right hash kickers. And that's a new thing for me. Maybe he's inventing a whole new specialty here, but there, what, what is clear is that UMHB is searching for some consistency in that part of their game. And we see this quite a bit in the playoffs from UMHB, their offense gets a little quieter, a little more conservative, and they really rely on those three points here and there to get them through. And, not having a consistent kicking game or something that they can really uh, count on when they get down in the red zone install is, you know, it could be a problem as they move a little bit deeper on in the tournament. There's some, some really heavy hitters coming their way uh, if they advance past next weekend, not to say that they, not to say that next weekend is, is an easy one for them either. And who they face next is Birmingham Southern Birmingham Southern uh, beats Huntington for the second time this season, this time by 24 to 14 score. Yeah, this was a really good effort by Huntington to come back after losing to the same Birmingham Southern team 48-9 to in September. The Hawks scored first on Saturday, as they did back in that game in September, but the Panthers then scored the next 24 points in the game. The key moment in this game right before halftime happens as Birmingham Southern's Cameron DeArmond sacked Landon Cotney, forcing a fumble that Birmingham Southern would recover at the Huntington seven-yard line. The Panthers score two plays later. And those short field right at the end of the half touchdowns are just they're huge momentum crushers. And that score put Birmingham Southern up 17 to seven, extended that game out to multiple possessions and Huntington never got the game back to within one possession the rest of the way. First NCAA playoff game in Division three football on the campus of Birmingham Southern College. And Tony Joe White talks about not getting caught up in the emotions of that event. And what I'm most proud about our guys is they they didn't get caught up in the emotions of this game and that they, uh, they just went out and methodically executed our schemes, both offensively and defensively in the kicking game. And, uh, you know, it paid off for us. You know, um, it's, uh, it's a credit to them and just the, the way that they handled the moment by being prepared. Sure. Other side of the bracket, Greg, I mean, teams advanced pretty handily. St. John's 
over Lake Forest, 41-14. Linfield over Redlands, 44-10. St. John's, I think the most, maybe the most interesting thing is Henry Trost just getting a handful of carries in the first quarter and then getting replaced by Devin Vuk the rest of the way, who just went for 143 yards on 17 carries, scored two touchdowns. Um, Chris Back is through for four scores. And, you know, as we look, we'll look ahead later to next week where they're going to try to, where they're going to need that running game. But uh, don't really know. I mean, Trost looked a little bit banged up at the end of the Bethel game at the end of the regular season, then only got a handful of carries on Saturday before bowing out. Obviously, St. John's has other running backs, other running backs on its depth chart that can definitely step in and do the job. But uh, for the, in order for them to advance, being down their starting quarterback, now they, if they're not at uh, full strength at running back, this is really posing a problem. Yeah, and the, the path to a semifinal, a return to the semifinal for St. John's gets very difficult for the rest of the, the, rest of the way through their region. So if they can give Trost three quarters off and not have him get banged around by Lake Forest. Um, good on them. I think, you know, this is the time of the year where everybody's beat up. And if you can, if you can steal some rest for your guys, not a bad time to do it. In the, the Linfield side of the ledger, Linfield, a little bit of a slow start, right? They do not even score until there's more than uh, 17 minutes gone in the game. And then after that kind of pretty typical Linfield offense and not a typical Linfield defense either. I mean, this was a 51 to 10 game. The last time those two teams met and it was 44 to 10 on Saturday. Yes. And Redlands had a much better start to this game than they did in the first game in September. Uh, really, they could not have asked for a better start. They were forcing punts from Linfield. They, you know, they got, I believe they got ahead early in this game with a field goal three to zero. Um, but then Linfield, you know, they, they, they got it together and, started scoring touchdowns. Uh, Wyatt Smith had a really fine game. Colton Smith, his brother, fine game receiving. Um, and Linfield, a f- very efficient offensively. They got that going in the second quarter and just methodically pulled away from Redlands uh, throughout the, the course of the game. Moving on to the second bracket or the bottom left bracket or the UW-Whitewater bracket, however you want to think of them, where we have already talked about the offense and the day that the offense had for central, but we also need to talk about the kick return unit for the Dutch, which gave the offense some great field position all day. Here's Cameron Bannister talking about it after the game. Uh, Coach, I mean, it was just, he set up a good game plan for us and props to the guys for picking up their blocks. I mean, there were some holes that sometimes that like <clears throat> could have had five blade or balls fit through. I mean, <laughs> it was, it was just awesome to have guys, you know, going hard on special teams and, I mean, it really just flipped field position and put us in a, a greater spot to put the ball in the end zone and a greater chance to just win this game. Bannister averaged 30 yards on four kickoff returns. Ryan New had a 53-yard kickoff return. I mean, they didn't bring a kickoff back into the end zone, but they set themselves up with great offensive field position all day. Yeah, I think maybe maybe one of the things that gets missed about Central Dutch's season, uh, you get lost in all of the video game stats from Blaine Hawkins in the offense, but they're playing really good defense as well. They're doing great on special teams. They're really playing great in all three phases. And, you know, this, it, it feels like a different kind of team than the one that went to Wheaton in 2019 and, and got buried 35 to zero in the first quarter. So, you know, who knows, who knows, this is going to be a very good game next week as Wheaton advances as well. Yeah. Wheaton uh, pulled away from Aurora. They had a big second quarter. They put up 28 points. 
in the second quarter, went on to win 63-31, a game probably not as close as it sounds, three touchdowns in the fourth quarter for Aurora uh, after the game was 63-13. to uh, Gavin Zimbelman, so with those three touchdowns, he did end up throwing five for the game. Uh, Luke Anthony threw six for Wheaton. And uh, yeah, I guess if you are uh, looking for that silver lining for Aurora, you know, that's a team that's 0-3 against the top six teams in the country and 8-0 against everybody else. It'll be one of those things where we never really quite know how we should have ranked Aurora at any point this season, and that includes today. It really does. They've got they've got two lopsided wins against or two lopsided losses rather against North Central and Wheaton. Those are two teams that we saw play fairly evenly earlier this season. The one point loss to St. John's that was week one quite a while ago. But yeah, I mean, it, it would have been nice to see Aurora play a game against maybe Central or uh, a game against Bethel, perhaps um, just to get sort of a a middle a, another data point on them that's not NACC <laughs> and title contenders. Exactly. So we look forward to that Wheaton Central game. The other pod in this bracket, I mean, UW Whitewater does what is expected against Greenville. Uh, Greenville making its first trip to the playoffs. UW Water making its 2,715. Uh, Alex Pete with uh, 93 yards and three touchdowns. Got 13 carries. Max Myler with a good day. Uh, even Evan Lewandowski had a good day as a backup. Ryan Wisniewski, five catches for 98 yards and a touchdown. Yes, I'm debuting a new pr- pronunciation because that's what I have been told is the actual pronunciation of the wide receiver formerly known as Ryan Wisniewski. So just FYI, I think I got that correct. Um, and I told this about four weeks ago and have not had an opportunity to use it on the podcast since. So here you are. I feel like we might be mentioning Ryan Wisniewski a little bit more as over the next few weeks. Um, in the other half of that pod, we have uh, DePaul defeating Rose Holman 26 to 21 for the second straight week. DePaul jumped out to an early two touchdown lead, but unlike last week, they were able to make that early lead stand up despite giving up over 500 yards of offense. The tiger defense was huge on Saturday. They intercepted Rose Holman quarterback, Andrew Dion five times and allowed the engineers to score just three times in seven trips to the red zone. Meanwhile, wind a big factor at Blackstock Stadium on Saturday. And here's uh, DePauw coach Brett Dietz talking about how much DePauw wanted the wind in the fourth quarter. Yeah, we had some turnovers, um, and, and that's what you really can't do. Um, but the defense was playing great. They kept, they kept answering, and, and uh, we got some first downs, but then we turned it over. So, um, you know, the wind down there is, is – probably more significant than a lot of people even realize. Throwing that ball into that wind, um, especially you get this late in November, it's hard going south today. I mean, both offenses struggled. Even that last fourth down pass that they completed, man, that ball almost didn't even get there. So um, we knew we wanted the wind in the fourth, so we knew it was maybe be a little bit harder for Chase to pass um, in the third quarter, and we had to get the run game going, and, and we did. Found something and then obviously turned it over. So. Um, you know, those are those are kind of the big things. The third quarter, the defense really picked us up and just got to keep playing football, got to keep playing games, keep playing games. They got another great interception, could punch it in, but got those critical points where they could kick that field goal right there at the end. So, uh, but we're going to learn from stuff on offense and, hey, you get it in that close, obviously you got to punch it in. I mean, you can't you can't let that happen anymore. Um, and we really got away with that one because of how well the defense played. Which, frankly, Greg, just uh, is even more impressive that Rose Holman got those uh, couple of scores into the wind in that quarter. 
It really is. And um, if you've never been to Blackstock Stadium. And I have not. It is kind of out in the open there. It, that stadium is not surrounded by buildings. It's not surrounded by trees. It's just kind of out there. And when you get a blustery fall central Indiana day, like we had on Saturday, you can get a pretty nasty uh, North to South wind in there. And it's that, that is a, that's a factor that I have seen impact bone on bell games in the past in 2005, uh, Chris Creighton sort of famously burned up a bunch of timeouts at the end of the first quarter of that game to force the pod to kick a field goal into the wind. That field goal was missed. Wabash wins the game 17 to 14. So the wind does get does get bad in there at times and can affect the game quite a bit. And Brett Dietz, knowing a little bit about it, a little home field advantage there for DePaul, surprise home field advantage. Moving on to the top right bracket, we got this game between Albion and the UW Lacrosse. We've talked about it a little bit, but maybe not to the uh, detail. And I don't know how much of a detail you need when it is, you know, 37 to three early on in the second half. Yeah, so we talked about a little bit earlier, Albion kind of a surprise host in this game, but Britons really could not conjure up any of that sprinkle sprandle stadium magic as the visiting Eagles left with a 58 to 23 victory. Lacrosse led in this game 37 to three at one point in the third quarter, and they just cruised the rest of the way. After a week off, Jacob Parks returned for Lacrosse. He threw five touchdown passes in the win, and Lacrosse seems to be back to full strength after. Uh, after a couple tough couple of weeks against uh, in, at the end of the WIAC season there. Yeah. And if you're just referencing back to what uh, coach Janice talked about uh, parks, getting the week off because of a little bit of a neck strain suffered against whitewater uh, backup, as we mentioned last week, did pretty well against Eau Claire and the rest is history. Moving on to play North central just for a second. I mean, for those of you, if you missed the news, like we said, uh, North Central advanced to the second round by default in a no contest uh, because Carnegie Mellon, in part of its uh, university testing of student athletes for COVID, uh, uncovered multiple positive COVID tests in the football team on Friday. Football team literally was uh, halfway to Chicago, maybe further than that, and had to turn around and go home. They ended up defaulting their position in the playoffs. I just wanted to throw out some hypotheticals here, Greg. Uh, you know, people were saying, well, let's fly Harden Simmons in to take that spot or something like that, right? Um, let's, but let's say this didn't happen on Friday. Let's say this happened on Monday and make it somewhat more reasonable uh, that uh, you might be able to put someone in their place, in, in the place of, uh, of Carnegie Mellon. It has to be a PAC team, right? This is the PAC's automatic bid. You can't just sub them out for some Pool C team. That's right. Carnegie Mellon didn't take the place of an at-large team from somebody else. They were the pack representative. And I think if you were to replace Carnegie Mellon, you would do, you would go with the second place team from the pack, uh, which I believe would have been Westminster in this case. And Westminster was already preparing for another game. So I don't, you know, I don't know how ready they would have been to jump into the NCAA tournament. I don't know if you, if you get that opportunity on a Monday, if you say no, I mean, the NCAA tournament is not, something that is guaranteed all the time. And if you get an opportunity, I think you say yes, but um, yeah, you know, unfortunate situation there for Carnegie Mellon and North central with a week off. Is that rust or rest? We'll see. Right. I mean, I don't know how much it's an interesting question, right? They've got lacrosse coming in who 
is going to be the, probably the biggest challenge, maybe the biggest challenge offensively they faced all season. Um, you know, obviously they shut down uh, Gavin Zimbelman's crew uh, back in week two in their season opener. They handled Wheaton really well. Uh, lacrosse just seems to be playing really well right now. And I, it, obviously it's not head and shoulders above anybody that uh, North Central has played, but, uh, you know, a very interesting challenge. I guess it, I think I'm sure a coach, any coach would say that at this point, it's more about, do you have guys, key guys dinged up who you could stand to have an extra week of rests for? And maybe that's the deal. And I do think there's this North Central team is pretty veteran. There's a lot of guys back from that 2019 team. So I, you know, that's a, that's a veteran team with some older players that I think will know how to manage that by week and not be rusty when they come back. I think they will be, adequately charged up and fired up. And we've seen earlier this year, coach Thorne doesn't have a whole lot of issues getting that team ready to play a game. No, definitely no motivational issues on, on a very veteran team for that, uh, for that squad to be sure. Good thing that this isn't happening like during the old North central academic calendar, North central is famously one of the few schools that was on trimesters and they often struggled in the second round of the playoffs because it came during finals week of the fall trimester. So at least that's not a factor this time around. Of course, it was not a factor in 2019. The other half of this top right bracket is the New York portion of the bracket, region two with a sprinkling, a smattering of region one uh, in which Cortland advanced past Springfield, RPI advanced past Endicott. The, uh, um, no, it's just RPI game. I think if we had, uh, I don't remember what we picked in terms of scores, but uh, if we, if people who picked more than 20 points or so for RPI, um, we're probably not paying a lot of attention to RPI games this year. Yeah, our our scores were pretty spot on with this. Nobody got nobody got too crazy with the RPI score. We did get we did have a clean sweep. Everybody got this game right, um, but this was kind of a typical 2021 game from RPI. Nothing too flashy. Not a ton of points just steady, consistent offense and a stout defense that just, they're just not going to give a team more than 20 points. The engineer defense allowed Endicott just one third down conversion and, and just 48 snaps. And it's hard to do a whole lot with just 48 plays. Vinny McDonald was the offensive star for RPI hauling in seven catches for 122 yards and two touchdowns. And George Marinopoulos, he's not hundred percent out there, but he keeps grinding it out. And he threw for all three of RPI scores on Saturday. I just checked and I picked 24 to 10. So maybe I have to set that bar at more than 24, but nobody picked more than 27. Anyway, that's fairly typical. As you said, here's a little bit from George Marinopoulos about Saturday's game. Yeah, it feels awesome. Um, really excited to be back here with these guys. Um, glad we could execute today against a really good Endicott team and excited that we're going to be able to play again next week. From your perspective, how were you able to get? Were you looking for, particularly, I think there was a few plays where Vinny had, Vinny had like a five foot nine, hundred and sixty pound DB on him. I mean, were you looking specifically for him on some of these plays? Yeah, when we get the matchup, we like to we like to take advantage of it because we know we got Vinny on the outside, um, and we like him against all sorts of DBs, not just the guys we saw today. Because we have faith that he's going to come down with it nine times out of ten. Other side, this was a uh, this was a game, right? I mean, we we talked about. Uh, you know, what the possibilities were, where someone might jump up and grab somebody. And, you know, those uh, triple option teams always could sneak up on somebody who isn't Mount Union. That's right. You know, Springfield, they are the lone three loss team in the tournament this year. And they did give the Red Dragons a pretty spirited game on Saturday. 
during the bracket blitz, I had mentioned that this was a game with some upset potential because Springfield, they're going to be able to keep the clock moving with their option offense, limit the number of possessions that Bree Segella and the high-powered Cortland offense would have. Springfield did keep Cortland within shouting distance for much of this game, and they had the ball with one minute and 10 seconds left to play and a chance to drive for the go-ahead score that vaunted one-minute offense that Springfield has. But once again, you know, they, Cortland got some, some late-game defensive heroics, and this week it was Will Ruckert disrupting a Springfield option operation, forced a fumble from Springfield quarterback David Wells, and ended the last chance for the Pride. Cortland moves on, 26-21. Uh, and then we move down to the bottom right-hand corner. This is the one that uh, featured the biggest toss-up game. Literally, it was a, an even split, 3-3, in our uh, quick hits predictions. And, um, you know, maybe the game itself did not live up to its billing because it was a, uh, you know, a 45 to 10 game. But uh, Johns Hopkins comes away with a win. Yeah, they do. I think we knew that we knew that Johns Hopkins and Salisbury would be a contrast to styles. I don't know that we really saw coming the kind of dominance that Hopkins showed in this game. This was a Salisbury team that acquitted themselves pretty well against Whitewater earlier this season for particularly on defense for a half or so. But Hopkins scored early and often against the Seagulls on Saturday. Salisbury scored first on a nifty reverse, but Hopkins scored touchdowns on the next five of their six possessions, and they had this game well in hand by halftime. Ryan Stevens and Harrison Hallstrom, they both had big days. They connected three times for touchdowns. Here's Stevens and then uh, defensive back Macaulay Kilbane to talk about that win. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for us on the offensive side of the ball is just we just knew if we – were uh, productive on the ball, productive within our offense and efficient as we have been in the past, that we can score against anyone. And uh, ultimately, just myself getting through the progressions and the line getting me time and ultimately us re, uh, us controlling the line of scrimmage ultimately won us this game on the offense side of the ball. And then our defense came up huge with turnovers and stops. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty easy when we got such a lethal offense and an offense putting up 45 points a game. Um, so it makes it a li little easier defensively. But again, I think it just starts with the game plan. Um, you know, our, our defensive staff had a, a great game plan and know they'll continue to put in a, a great uh, game plan for Mount coming up. Um, but, you know, we were excited once we got once we got in and now it's just about uh, using the chance and, and continuing to move on. Other game in the top half of that bracket, I mean, these are the uh, the blowouts that we were referring to. Mount Union, you know, named its final score against WNL. Uh, they pretty much, uh, you know, they dominated WNL the last time these teams met in the playoffs, and that game was in a driving rainstorm and with Mount Union's backup quarterback, so that may have kept the score surprisingly close, as it were, if that were a category that we were still using. Um, but uh, in this case, uh, Mount Union 52-zip is, uh, is, is pretty indicative. It is, and WNL, they were all kinds of beat up coming into this game. They have a really depleted two deep at this point, and it showed. They, they really struggled to move the ball. 100 yards of total offense for the Generals. And then the bottom half, Muhlenberg over Framingham State, 45 nothing. Delaware Valley over Anna Maria in the first playoff appearance of Anna Maria, 62-10. to 10. Anna Maria, I mean, got off to a... Uh, got off to a fast start, right? They returned the opening kickoff, 82 yards for a touchdown. It's go up 7-0. Uh, and they were down only 21-10 early in the second quarter. But, you know, then there's Delaware Valley being what they are. 
yeah, the Delaware Valley defense really took over and shut Anna Maria down. So, you know, that game got away from Anna Maria there in the second half. We can't take anything away at all from Anna Maria. They, you know, achieved a program high in wins. They won the ECFC. They qualified for the NCAA tournament. Really big steps for that program this year under Dan, Dan Mulrooney. Here's Val linebacker Anthony Tedesco on facing that Anna Maria air raid offense. I mean, coming into this, we knew it was going to be a different look for us. We've never really seen an air raid offense um, this year. So coming in, we knew they were going to pose some challenges. But we got the best defensive coach staff in the country, the best D-backs in the country. They made adjustments. We made adjustments and we ended up shutting them down. And then the uh, Muhlenberg-Framingham game. Framingham falls to its third loss of the season. They fall 45-0. Michael Natkowski, great game with four touchdown passes. Uh, Mitch Daniel, great game receiving. Uh, Framingham, 12 of 30 passing through three interceptions is pretty much the tail of the tape. Yeah, and if Muhlenberg can start finding some of that defensive form that they had in 2019, um, you know, this this week coming up against Delaware Valley, that's an interesting contrast of strength on strength there. But if Muhlenberg's defense is is rounding into form, maybe – Maybe another run to the semifinals is not out of the question. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. Lots of things are not my stat, but this is my stat of the week. We talked about uh, Wheaton scoring 28 points on Aurora in the second quarter of that game. They did so because they had the ball almost the entire quarter, 12 minutes and two seconds time of possession for Wheaton in that quarter uh it makes it very difficult to score when the other team doesn't have the football I don't know if you know this this is a thing about football you you have to have the football generally to score um you know safeties aside yes you can overcome some time of possession difference but 12 minutes to three like that's a that's a fourfold difference in time of possession that's tough to beat my stat of the week comes from the inaugural Culver's Isthmus Bowl where UW River Falls defeated Washington University 48 to 27 in this WIAC CCIW showcase. This is the ninth win of the season for the Falcons, which matches a program high. That's not my stat. River Falls ran 115 offensive plays, which is absurd and also not my stat. While the Bears picked up a total of 16 first downs for the game, River Falls converted 16 third downs, all on their way to their NCAA Division III record tying 44 first downs in the game. I do like a record, and that is my stat of the week. River Falls ends up 9-2. and two. You imagine that uh, if lacrosse does something interesting on Saturday or if Whitewater continues you know, all the way to the Stag Bowl or something like that, that's a, a River Falls team that's ranked in that uh, number 22 spot right now. They could certainly see their uh, way to continue to climbing up that poll once the uh, final poll comes out after the stag bowl. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. We tweet. You respond. We sometimes respond. You t- sometimes then respond also. That is how Twitter works. And uh, this particular one is from Logan Hansen at Logan Ratings asking, what realistic, i.e. not DOA proposals, would you make to the NSA D3 Championship Committee? Changes to primary criteria, changes to pool A, changes to the bracket structure, changes to seating slash hosting criteria, whatever. Oh, great question. Love it. Love a good open-ended question that is not, how good do you think my team is is this year? People who aren't fishing for compliments for their teams were very happy to answer these questions. 
I proposed on this podcast a couple of years ago, something that's like a hybrid of the D3 and the D2 model. The D2 model is by regional rankings and it is the top X number of teams in a regional ranking get into the playoffs, except that if a conference champion who is ranked like in the next couple of spots below the cutoff is from a conference that wouldn't otherwise get in the field, then that team gets promoted up and, uh, and earns a, a spot. It's called earned access. My twist on this model was uh, kind of a, a flip side in that if you were an automatic qualifying conference in division three, but you didn't have anybody in the top like 15 of a region ranking back when we had four and maybe it'll be like top 12 or something in the current setup, then you might lose that bid to have it, uh, have it knocked out. And that became a, an extra at large bid. That's kind of complicated. I don't know that uh, people are quite ready for something like that. So I have something different to propose. It's a little simpler. Uh, and it's, it's kind of crucial right now. Um, the minimum number of teams you need for an automatic bid in NCAA division three in any sport is seven. Now there's a proposal out there right now to reduce that to six, which would be crazy sauce for division three football and not be super useful for a lot of the other sports either. Um, not for basketball, obviously not for soccer. There are some sports like baseball where there are not uh, a, where not everybody plays. And I think maybe there are some ice hockey conferences that are only six teams that might benefit from something like this. But if we were to do that in football, if you imagine subdividing some of the conferences we already have that are already seven teams and some of them then scatter and form another conference by taking a piece out of each conference, you think I'm crazy in, in saying that uh, conferences might do this, but I think we've basically seen it happen. We right now have 10 seven team conferences in division three. And if you look at the kind of region one, region two landscape, you've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, if you count the NJAC, but you have uh, five conferences, essentially New England and New York that are all seven teams each. I instead propose that we raise the minimum standard for automatic qualification in football to eight. People who are like, D3 philosophy wonks, and I'm a D3 philosophy wonk. I mean, you see me arguing on Twitter with all of these people who say, we should just have the top 32 teams in the, in the field, no matter what. They say, no, we are all about automatic bids in division three, and that isn't a problem. Uh, it is a problem, however, in football, right? Because there are just not enough at-large bids to go around. And I know I'm, I'm ranting here, but I'm coming to a point. The reason I think that we can advocate for having slightly different automatic qualifying standards for football than we do for basketball and all the other sports is because football is landlocked at 32 teams. Like we discussed on the last podcast, you can't expand beyond a fifth week of playoffs in order to get 36 or more that we might deserve. So I really think it's not unusual and not out of the realm of possibility to raise the standard. So when I saw Logan propose this, I did some back of the napkin math, those 10 conferences that have seven teams. Basically, if we were to remove the automatic bid from all of them and throw them all into pool B, if you're new, you may not know pool B is a thing where there are still bids set aside for those 70 teams, but the ratio would be a little bit more reasonable. There would be only eight pool B teams or eight pool. There would be only eight pool B slots for those teams in those 10 conferences. I think that's still a reasonable amount. Then that gives us seven actual large bids it gives us a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more opportunity to get some of those other teams in the field, some of those at larges. So if I were to guess, if we had taken those 70 teams and pulled eight bids out of them, 
then we probably wouldn't have Springfield in the playoffs. We probably wouldn't have Anna Maria in this year's playoffs. Uh, and we might not have, might not have Greenville and we might have a second Liberty League team or a second Empire Eight team or something like that. I think that's a better playoff. And all of those teams uh, still in the future have their way, they have their opportunity to play their way into the playoffs. Greenville, let's be honest. I mean, Greenville beat Milliken this year. Greenville's not completely unrealistic as someone who, uh, you know, might have earned a Pool B bid in this scenario. I think it's not impossible. Uh, I think it's something that hopefully people consider. Unfortunately, the the big picture Division Three people, the presidents, don't really seem to care about the issues that only uh, the issues that only impact football. Only half of the schools, more or less, even have football, and presidents don't seem to be super interested in making decisions that benefit only football. I'm done with my ten minute rant. You're up. I think that's an important point that you know these decisions are associate uh, division wide across all of the all across all of the the sponsored sports it's not just football and i think we lose sometimes we lose that perspective <laughs> that some of the uh criteria and selection rules and whatnot are meant to be applied to all of the team sports and not just football mm-hmm. um if i were to propose a maybe not totally doa change to the selection process i might I might want to consider having a look at the strength of schedule calculation and its utility. I think increasingly we don't know what to do with that. I don't know that it really measures the strength of a team's schedule. Logan, actually our, our questionnaire here, you know, he's the math guy and he does a lot of modeling with these things. And I think, I think that, that calculation ought to start including more data to make it more meaningful if it's going to drive selection and rankings as much as it seems to in certain regions and other regions, they kind of dismiss it a little bit. But if we had, if we had a metric that did measure strength of schedule fairly evenly, whether you were playing in a 10 team conference or an 18 conference, um, maybe that piece of criteria would be, a little more evenly weighted across the regions. Yeah, it it needs to come with some sort of instructions, I think, to talk about how you apply this in a 10-team conference versus a 9-team conference versus an 8-team conference versus, I guess, one of these 10, 7-team conferences, right? Because strength of schedule is going to be almost entirely delineated by your non-conference games because all of your conference games are basically going to balance out to be 500. Yes, if if you continue to use math that just counts wins and losses. And that's what I'm saying is maybe that, maybe that metric needs some more data outside of just counting wins and losses. I think if we were to make another proposal, it would be to stagger kickoff times. There's an idea. Uh, the men's basketball committee does that with, uh, I think they have uh, deemed that a success because as far as I know, they continue to do it. And then here's another kind of radical idea. I would suggest that when we're picking host teams for playoff games, that we compare two teams head to head based on their criteria, rather than just look at how one team was ranked in one region and how another team was ranked in a completely different region. Of course, that's crazy talk, which is why we did it all the way up through 2019. And we just decided not to do it last week for some reason. I am as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. <sighs> Looking ahead to next week, we've talked a little bit about some of these things already. But look at the eight games. And they kind of break down into a handful of buckets. We've got two games that uh, each feature 
two programs that have won a stag bowl. We've got four games that have featured one program, which has won a stag or played in a stag bowl. And then we have uh, two games that feature nobody who's played in a stag bowl. We're going to start with the, the, the ones at the top of the list first uh, in that uh, North Central, of course, is the defending national champ. Uh, lacrosse won stag bowls in the 90s. Uh, and then we have St. John's against Linfield. St. John's, of course, has won two Stag Bowls, and Linfield won the Stag Bowl in 2004. I th- th- these are kind of like, also, it's kind of a proxy for, like, in my mind anyway, any one of those four teams could be playing in the Stag Bowl or could even be hosting, uh, hoisting Walnut and Bronze at season's end. Absolutely. I, these, are, these are four teams that are on my short list uh, of, of teams that could advance all the way to Canton and, and win and to see them playing here in the second round. I think it goes to show that the depth of teams that are good enough to win the stag bowl has increased from like three or four up to six or seven. And you're going to start to see games like this, where you have title contenders in the second round. And it's not always because of wonky geography pairings, like, we're going to start as we have more and more quality teams are going to start playing earlier and earlier in the tournament. It's not a bad thing. Thing about North central. And, you know, we talked ever so slightly about it with Matt Janis back at the beginning of the podcast. You know, they have so many of these key pieces back on offense, right? Andrew Kaminsky's back. D'Angelo Hardy's back. Ethan Greenfield is back. Those offensive linemen, a whole bunch of them back. It's Luke Lanon who's the not as proven factor. I think it's, that's, that's, that's a perfectly subjective way to say it, right? I certainly, compared to red hot Brock Rudder who uh, carried them all the way to the uh, stag bowl win in 2019. That's the one thing that is a little different for them on offenses. They don't, uh, we don't quite know what they have at that position in November and then presumably December. It's true. I know Luke Lanon did have a really strong little brass bell game earlier mm-hmm. in September. You know, he showed the ability to improvise and run around and avoid that Wheaton front seven pretty well you know, how much he's grown into the system over the last uh, eight or nine weeks since that game. We're going to find out against lacrosse because that's a team that is big and strong and physical. And this is the kind of team that you have to beat two or three times on your way to the championship. Not entirely unanalogous to the second round playoff opponent that uh, North Central faced back in 2019 when they won at Mount Union. So lacrosse, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about them in the course of this podcast already. And previously, you know, I think the only question is, do we have the lacrosse that played against Platteville or do we have the lacrosse that played against Whitewater? That's true. You know, I mean, you don't know. And I obviously, if, if you get lacrosse in the Platteville game, then, you know, North Central is probably going to win this one fairly comfortably. Um, but lacrosse playing as well as they did to take Whitewater to the final play. Um, you know, you mentioned North Central being that team that went on the road in the second round in 2019 to beat a powerhouse. Uh, you know, if lacrosse shows up with their A game, the shoe may well be on the other foot. We got these games that each feature one team that has won a stag bowl. I mean, Central won a stag bowl in 1974, but they're on this list. Central against Wheaton, Mary Harden Baylor against Birmingham Southern, Whitewater and DePauw, Mount Union against Johns Hopkins. You know, there's, boy, I would have said, I would have just immediately checked the box and said, Mary Harden Baylor against Birmingham Southern, probably not a close game, but Birmingham Southern and Trinity fairly even. So therefore, we have to think that Birmingham Southern and and uh, and Mary Harden Baylor could be a competitive game because it was between Trinity and Mary Harden Baylor last week. It could be, and I think if Birmingham Southern is going to 
make it a game over in Belton this weekend. They're going to need a little bit better from Chris Shuford than they got against Huntington. Trey Patterson is going to have to be very good. And this is going to be Trey Patterson's first time seeing that kind of defense speed everywhere. The windows aren't as big. Uh, They're faster than you a little bit. So he's not going to be able to run around and run away from people quite as much. Some of those throws that he makes downfield that look open, stop being open against the Crusaders. We'll see. And I think it'll be, you know, they're going to have to be really crisp offensively and defensively, I think is where Birmingham Southern really needs to shine and have their best game of the season. Um, I don't expect UMHB to score just 13 points this week, but yeah, this is, this is another one of those stepping stone games for a program that's been building out of the SAA in Birmingham Southern. Central against Wheaton. You mentioned earlier, of course, that uh, Central found itself in a 35 zip hole against Wheaton back in the second week of the playoffs in 2019 and their defenses, they got tested on Saturday. I mean, obviously, I mean, one of these, one of these touchdowns, the last touchdown uh, comes, you know, when it's a 26 point game with six minutes left, but the rest of it is all in the first half. It's a 27, 21 Bethel deficit at the end of the first half. Bethel's right in that game has scored a number of points at that point. And I think Wheaton's offense is pretty darn good and has the potential to do the same thing. Maybe not put 35 on the board right out of the shoot, but uh, that's still the question, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Wheaton, Wheaton really, really came alive offensively this week. They used Spencer Peterson a lot, uh, which is good. That's the kind of player in the playoffs that is a matchup nightmare for just about anybody that you're going to play. And I think throwing the ball to him as much as you can is a good idea. You know, the, the really intriguing part about this matchup is can Central continue to score 50 and 60 points against a defense like Wheaton? Um, so far, nobody has been able to stop them. I thought, I thought Bethel's defense would slow them down and maybe keep them in the 40s. That did not happen. For Central, it has to be kind of the dream matchup. Like, this is the one you want to get back, right? Certainly, they don't feel like they played their best game in round two in 2019, and now they're going to get a chance at home to make up for that. Whitewater against DePauw? As uh, as a, a is it, is this analogous to when Whitewater against Wabash from some years back? Could be. I don't know if I don't know if this DePauw team is at the level of some of those Wabash teams ranked in the top twenty-five um, with really stout defenses. You know, this is likely going to be a learning experience for Brett Dietz and that program to see what that next level of of opponent looks like. We'll see how long DePauw can hang out with Whitewater, but up there at Perkins Stadium, that's that's a tough place to win. And I feel like the Mountain Union Johns Hopkins game, probably not too much different. Obviously we probably felt that way about the semifinal trip a couple of years back in 2018. That was a game down to the final moment. I just don't know that we have the same feeling about this particular Johns Hopkins program, especially since they're one coming in with a regular season loss rather than an unbeaten uh, record. They do. I'm not the, this Johns Hopkins team, I think is, maybe not quite as strong defensively as that team. Um, Their offense is every bit as explosive for sure. Johns Hopkins really playing with house money. I don't know that they woke up on Sunday last week thinking that they were going to keep playing uh, in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, they're playing with nothing to lose. And, you know, Mount Union did have the one game where uh, Brody Hahn from ONU threw it all over the place on them. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's Johns Hopkins shot here is Ryan Stevens slinging it all over the place and having success against Mount Union's defensive backs. 
whether he can or not, we will see. And then these other two games featuring teams that have not played in a stag bowl or programs that have not played in a stag bowl. We've got Cortland against RPI and we have DelVal against Muhlenberg. I mean, DelVal and Muhlenberg obviously have been deep in the playoffs recently. Uh, Muhlenberg, including a national semifinal appearance last year where they got to, I say last year all the time, people, please understand that. I mean, the last time that we had a playoff, I I've caught myself like six times in the last five minutes. I missed that one. Uh, you know, you copy editors are out there listening. I'm one of them. Anyway, my point being, if we're going to pick a score of this game, it's probably going to be like 17 to 13, right? It, yeah, it could be. Um, I, it's hard to see anybody scoring a ton on this DelVal defense. I mean, whether it's air raid or any other kind of offense that you throw at them, they've been shutting it down. Um, Muhlenberg, they were tested against uh, Hopkins. Hopkins played a really good defensive game against Muhlenberg. I know I just said Hopkins defense wasn't as good as it was in 2017, but um, you know, Hopkins defended Muhlenberg really well, but Michael Natkowski, he's a senior, he's been to the semifinals and in that game, not his best game, but he made the plays when he needed to, you know, we'll see if he can find some success against Delaware Valley, where any other team in the Mac has not been able to. And then Cortland and RPI, we have the champion of that New York state super league. Everybody was uh, angling for about uh, 15 years ago. And Hey, if we take uh, if we take the automatic bid qualification up to eight teams, maybe we do get a combined empire eight Liberty league. Cortland and RPI. These are two teams. Common opponent with Ithaca, they both beat Ithaca with when Ithaca missed last second field goals. So, you know, this feels to me like, I mean, it's an RPI game, so the score is going to be 22 to 20, right? Wait, for, did I just, I spoiled quick hits. We're not, we're not predicting scores yet. I got ahead of myself. Well, but we did predict scores last week. So instead of, uh, since we don't have a, on the spot to spot check, why don't we spot check quick hits from last week? And I'm not just saying this because I got all 16 of them right. Uh, the panel did pretty well predicting the first round results and also the types of games that we saw. We hit on 15 of 16 winners with just one game that was a split decision. So 15-0-1, I'm calling it. Games where we were a little bit off on the game flow were UMHB and Trinity. That ended up being lower scoring than we thought it would be. And Bethel Central is a game where really only Pat predicted a central blowout and nobody really got close to predicting a 60 point outburst from the Dutch. Uh, the one split decision on the panel was uh, Johns Hopkins and Salisbury. We were split three to three and we were all over the map with scores on that, on that game. We had some, some of us predicted Salisbury blowouts. Some of us predicted Johns Hopkins blowouts in the end, Ryan tips had the best read on that game, predicting a 42 to 24 win for the blue Jays. If you're scoring at home, playing a little bracketology at home with the quick hits panel, the road to Canton scoreboard is as follows. Pat and Greg swept the first round, predicting 16 out of 16 winners. Keith McMillan, he missed just on Salisbury, while Ryan Tips missed on Huntingdon. Keith and Ryan got 15 out of the 16 games correct in the first round. Frank Rossi missed on his upset pick of Albion and also missed Salisbury for a first round score of 14. Adam Turrer has 13 correct picks so far. He missed on Rose Holman, Bethel, and also Salisbury. Plenty of time for Adam to make up ground as the games from here on out, I think, are going to have uh, quite a bit less consensus among the panel. Also, uh, I want to give a quick hat tip to Frank Rossi for piloting the bracket blitz on Saturday. That is a heavy lift to host and produce 
the first round whip round coverage that we do. And Frank steered the blitz smoothly through the first 14 games of the day. And that's four over four hours of live coverage. Tough to do. And Frank did it well. So thank you for Frank for emceeing the, the bracket blitz. Emceeing and producing. I mean, that those, each of those jobs is ought to be a separate person. And he's not only uh, sitting in the uh, anchor chair, but he's also manually clicking the buttons that, take you from game to game. So a couple of things to keep an eye out here before we head to a close, take a uh, look at the site this week, look out for Gallardi Trophy semifinalists. Uh, and then the, there will be fan voting once again this year, the fans will have one of those ballots for the Gallardi Trophy. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, sports information directors and coaches, uh, all region nominations will be open by the time you get this. Also making a note to self to finish opening up and creating six regions worth of all region nominations, which oddly enough takes 50% longer than it does to create for all region nominations. Also, obviously it's a time of year for uh, coaching changes. Uh, Aaron Kreps out at Bluffton, Joe Fincham retiring from Wittenberg. Your quick 12 seconds take on Joe Fincham retiring from Wittenberg. Joe Fincham, you know, long Dean of the NCAC coaches. He's been there for 25 years. Uh, Wittenberg, the winningest program in division three history, most wins all time. I believe that is still the case. I don't think Mountain Union has caught them yet. Um, Joe Fincham is a big part of that legacy at Wittenberg. They've been, they've been the, the standard for 20 plus years in the North coast athletic conference. And um, kind of, I did not see this one coming and you forget that he's been there for that long. So um, it'd be interesting to see where Wittenberg goes next if they stay within the Wittenberg family. They've got Reed Florence there on staff. That would be an obvious promotion from offensive coordinator. Uh, maybe Andy Waddle at Marietta might come home, uh, or they might go, you know, full national search and see who turns up. Wittenberg, they've got some spiffy new facilities there. So that's a that's a really interesting job that is now open in the North Coast. Those won't be the only two coaches who changed hands this year, so keep an eye out for that. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 295, released on November 22nd of 2021. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the postseason. Get your turkey on Thursday. We'll have content on Thursday, I'm pretty sure, because it took us all the way through Saturday morning to get the final uh, the final playoff feature story on the website this past week, and it might take us uh, into Thursday to do that this time around. Anyway, you can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. Even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, fellow alumnus about the show, and you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FD hashtag. I'm at FreeFootball. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Pullman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. Use more of his tracks. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Matt Janis. Thanks to Sports Information Director David Johnson. Thanks to Bill Wagner, Sports Information Director as well. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host. And thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan. Thank you so much, everybody.